Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Transition turmoil, the D.C. deadlock continues as the U.S. hits fresh COVID records. Aid on hold, millions of Americans remain out of work, no prospect of help in sight. And a super hot date, Singles Day smashed records in China and in the United States. It's Thursday, let's make a move. A warm welcome once again to First Move. It's great to be with you as always. Today, though, a reality check. After a week of discussing the beginning of the end of the COVID crisis, the truth is we aren't there yet. And around the world, a number of COVID cases continues to rise. Hospitalizations are at or near record levels here in the United States and in the UK. Cases of coronavirus in Japan have hit fresh records too. It's a reminder that we have to get through a long, long winter first. That's the message, at least from the investment community, I think, today as stocks lose ground. Investors once again buying pandemic winners like Zoom, like Netflix. For much of the week, we've been watching rotation out of tech and into some of the pandemic losers like airlines on the hopes that the upcoming vaccines will trigger a swift economic rebound. And the truth is, too, more good news may follow soon. Dr. Anthony Fauci says Moderna could release data on its vaccine version within a matter of days. In the meantime, Goldman Sachs says vaccines will give Wall Street at least room to run, raising its forecast and seeing double-digit gains next year. It's predicting a, quote, roaring 20s redux. But there's no room on roaring back for the real economy. The U.S. reporting an additional 709,000 people filed for first-time jobless claims last week. As we keep talking about on this show, more than 21 million Americans are still getting some form of financial assistance. And without action from the government, up to 13 million people could lose COVID-related benefits at the end of this year. As always, in the absence of political leadership, it falls to the central bankers. ECB chief Christine Lagarde, Fed chair Jay Powell and the head of the Bank of England will all speak today. At least someone's ready to act. Let's get to the drivers. Christine Romans joins us now. Christine, we seem to be in a steady state in terms of the hundreds of thousands of people that ask for assistance in America each week. Fresh benefit requests, that is. And, you know, I look at the COVID case records and then I look at the words of Dr. Michael Osterholm, advisor to President-elect Joe Biden, saying we need a four to six week shutdown, support people's income in the meantime. But they're talking shutdown. Yeah, I mean, that idea being floated yesterday got an awful lot of attention. And the idea here is to to, you know, to crush the virus and protect the economy. He's talking about working with Congress to get a very big, robust package so that you can pay people and small business and medium-sized businesses so they can literally shut down and weather this COVID storm. You know, you're so right that just a couple of days ago, we were we could see the glimmers of hope, you know, on the horizon because of the vaccine news. But we are in the midst of these rising hospitalizations, rising case counts and really kind of a vacuum of leadership in the U.S. outside of the doctors. Our own Sanjay Gupta is calling this a humanitarian crisis. We've heard doctors say we're heading into the winter of hell. So even as investors are looking ahead, Goldman Sachs, for example, looking ahead to these great 
targets for the S&P 500 next year and the year after, there's a bridge that the real economy needs to get there, that Main Street needs to get there. And that bridge stops right, you know, right over that chasm. Yeah. And this is the critical point here. And actually, Dr. Osterholm was saying this, and you've alluded to the point as well. You can have a lockdown, support people in the interim and bring the economy back long before the Q1, Q2, Q3 prospect of a vaccine. And we have to remember that the markets may soar, but the real economy still needs that bridge, as you describe it. It really does. And and I think I worry a little bit about the plateauing jobless claims number, the fact that continuing claims are down to the six million handle. That could well be because people are rolling off their state benefits. And that could be giving false comfort to those in Washington who are deficit hawks, who don't want to spend any more money, who just want to see how this is going to to play out. They don't have a stock market problem breathing down their neck. The S&P 500 is up 10 and percent this year. So no real problem there. But there is a real problem with real people, and it's only going to get worse. It's a health problem, and it's a jobs problem. We are still down 10 million jobs uh, from March. So when I hear people inside the Beltway and people in, 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 in here in New York, many of them working from home, by the way, with the, you know, they have the option of working from home, talking about how great the stock market could be in the next year or two, I really worry that the leadership is losing sight of what really matters, and that's people who are who are falling, not even falling through the cracks, who are, there are no cracks. They are just free falling here. Yeah, and it's happening all around the world. Yeah. We won't forget this. Christine Romans, we will keep talking about it. Thank you. Sorry for all the mixed metaphors. I had 25 metaphors there. I, I just No, I loved them all. I was, I was absorbing them all. Don't you worry. Okay, okay good. <laughs> Thank you. Right. Still no sign of an election concession in D.C. Joe Biden not receiving daily intelligence briefings nor correspondence from foreign leaders. One Republican senator says he will step in if this situation hasn't changed by Friday. John Harwood joins us now. John, and that's one of very few Republicans, let's face it, that's acknowledging Joe Biden as the the president-elect here. What I don't understand, and please explain to me, is why we can't have the recounts, why we can't have these legal battles and issues over who won this election, but still allow Joe Biden to be getting these briefings so he's ready when necessary. Well, the reason, Julia, is that most Republicans are uh, fearful of President Trump and his supporters They've allowed themselves to be taken hostage because they don't have the guts to stand up and say that Joe Biden is the president-elect. We had another one stand up and say it this morning. Uh, Republican Governor Mike DeWine of Ohio, very large state, told John Berman uh, on CNN's New Day, Joe Biden is the president-elect. Many Republicans are afraid to say that word, and as long as they are, You're not going to have the federal government make the uh, official determination called ascertainment that allows the formal part of the transition process to begin, including the expenditure of money and staff support, State Department and other places, to help Joe Biden uh, get up and running for uh, his presidency, which will begin on January 20th. Now, the uh, fortunate news for the United States and the rest of the world is that Joe Biden is an extraordinarily experienced guy with an extraordinarily experienced team. They already know a vast amount of what they need to know to get going. Uh, But this is an irritant. uh, And the question is, how long does the formal roadblock remain? We expect that uh, over time, uh, as the uh, uh, frivolous lawsuits the Trump campaign is filing get thrown out of court, 
the Republican resistance is going to erode, but it's still in place right now. And the critical differences for all the experience of Joe Biden and his team, we're in a health crisis, we're in a jobs crisis, an economic crisis. There is not a moment to lose. I called it a leadership vacuum yesterday. What is the president actually doing, John? Is he meeting with the coronavirus task force? It's, it's frightening to look at the numbers that we're seeing right now and to feel that, that no one cares, quite frankly. Julia, mostly what the president appears to be doing is watching television and taking his phone and tweeting messages to try to rally his base. Uh, he's had very few uh, official events on his calendar. We only saw him in public in the last several days uh, yesterday at a uh, uh, Veterans Day observance. Uh, he does not appear to be uh, interested in doing the job of president. To be honest, he hasn't appeared to be interested in doing most of the job as president throughout his term. Watching television is a whole lot of what he's done as president, um, but it's gotten worse now that he knows that he's on the way out. We believe that the president recognizes that he is not going to be president after January 20th, but he's embarrassed and humiliated by the election results, so he's trying to kick up dust to uh, cover that humiliation, also give him a cause going forward so he can keep a grip on his base, possibly run in 2020, or at least uh, get people rallied behind the uh, cause, the uh, uh, made-up cause that he had been defrauded out of the election. Yeah, time to find some grace, I think, for the good of America. John Harwood, sir, thank you so much for that. Now, as John was describing, while the wrangling in D.C. continues, the COVID crisis across the United States escalates. As Lucy Kafanov reports. Record highs across the country. On Wednesday, the United States reporting more than 144,000 new confirmed coronavirus cases. This is exactly what many of us expected would happen after Labor Day. And unfortunately, what we expect is it's going to go much higher than it is now. More than 65,000 patients are hospitalized with a coronavirus right now, the most of the entire pandemic. Several states reporting their highest case counts to date, including Illinois, where Governor J.B. Pritzker warns he is concerned about the growing rate of hospitalized coronavirus patients. Across the state, the majority of our regions are seeing far higher rates of hospitalizations for COVID-19 than they ever did last spring. In North Dakota, the governor announcing hospitals there are at full capacity. And in Ohio, the state saw its second worst day since the pandemic began, reporting more than 5,800 cases. Governor Mike DeWine reissuing a statewide mask order despite pushback from the public. We must do this to protect our frontline workers. I'm very well aware of the burden that this will place on employees. I'm well aware of the burden this places on the owners. But these are places, candidly, where it's difficult or impossible to maintain mask wearing, which we know now is the chief way of slowing this virus. And despite the relatively low numbers in New York compared to the rest of the country, fears of another lockdown are growing. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo issuing new restrictions as the state's test positivity rate is approaching 3%. Bars, restaurants and gyms will be closing at 10 p.m. and indoor gatherings are limiting to 10 people starting Friday. Here in Utah, the state seeing its highest seven-day average test positivity rate. It now stands at more than 22 percent.
These numbers make the push for a vaccine even more urgent. After the positive news from Pfizer earlier this week, now Moderna is reporting that it should know whether its vaccine works by the end of the month. The thing that we've uh, been dealing with in this country is a vaccine hesitancy or people really being skeptical about getting vaccinated. That is pretty much overcome when you get a vaccine of such high degree of efficacy as the Pfizer vaccine, which is, you know, 90 plus, closer to 95 percent efficacious. Definitely in need of leadership. Lucy Kefanoff reporting for us there. Now compare that to this. In China, shoppers are putting the pandemic behind them with some record retail therapy. Alibaba's annual singles day shopping extravaganza raked in $74 billion worth of sales. Selena Wang joins us. Selena, we should be clear, it was 11 days with two discount windows, but I was just trying to find some perspective here. It's the same sales as Target, the American retailer, does all year. Wow. That's right, Julia. And you did say that correctly, more than $70 billion in sales. But this is not an apples to apples comparison from last year, as you said, because it includes this pre-sale period that Alibaba created in order to juice more growth for those brands that were hit hard by the pandemic. But as Oliver Wyman's research assessment put it, it is clear that Chinese shoppers are still continuing to, quote, spend like crazy. Some analysts think these numbers are proof that spending in China has not only rebounded from those pre-COVID levels, but actually surpassed them. But again, it is hard to use this one-off event as a barometer for that post-COVID rebound, because as we discussed yesterday, it is hard to know how much of the spending is people actually stockpiling and taking advantage of those deep discounts. But it is, Julia, clear that some of these people are using this opportunity for that retail therapy, for indulgent shopping, because they have been able to save money during the pandemic, because they haven't been able to travel abroad when Chinese consumers spend heavily on luxury goods. So in Instead, they've been purchasing it online during Singles Day. Yeah, it's quite fascinating. And we shall see whether it can continue. Selena Wang, thank you so much for that. Now, stay with First Move 2 for more on China's record shopping spree. I spoke to Alibaba's president, Michael Evans, and that interview is coming up later on in the show. For now, let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Coronavirus cases are surging, even in countries that once thought they had the virus under control. Japan is now warning of a third wave, while Britain's death toll has surpassed 50,000 lives. And Italy has become the 10th country with over 1 million confirmed cases. Tropical storm Eta is moving across Florida, hitting the state for a second time after coming ashore early this morning. It brought heavy winds and rain to the Tampa area, causing significant flooding in some places. Eta previously made landfall in Central America and Cuba. All right, still to come here on First Move, Europe's largest industrial is cautious on a COVID-19 recovery. We speak to the CEO of Siemens next and much much colder than ice. We take a look at the challenges of a sub-zero vaccine cold chain. Stay with us. It's all coming up. Welcome back to First Move live from New York, where it's still looking like a mostly lower start for the U.S. stock market majors. Investors rotated back 
into tech stocks yesterday after two days of value stock supremacy. The Nasdaq rising 2%. We could see continued gains for the tech sector today, though, as you can see there, it's a pretty muted gain so far. The COVID crisis also still weighing on economically sensitive airlines. Emirates today reporting first half losses of almost $3.5 billion. Help will be needed from Dubai, it seems. In the meantime, German engineering giant Siemens also sounding a note of caution on the COVID-19 recovery in its earnings report. The company says customer investments will lag behind the economic recovery as companies continue to deal with the fallout from the pandemic. And I'm pleased to say Joe Kayser, CEO of Siemens, is joining us now. This is the company's final set of results too under his leadership. Joe, fantastic to have you with us on the show. You remain relatively cautious Good morning, as you Julia. have. Good morning, as you have throughout this uh, this pandemic, and I think that makes sense. But, you know, when I look at your earnings report across the three businesses relative to your peer group, these look like solid numbers and China's a bright spot. Can you and are you confident enough to say the worst is behind us? Well, first of all, I'm obviously very proud and glad that mm. we have been able to finish our fiscal Q4 in a successful way. Uh, it's a great achievement of our teams. It gives us a good baseline for now the challenges and the opportunities which we have uh, going forward into fiscal uh, 2021. And I agree with you. I mean, I believe it's, uh, it's uh, prudent now to be a bit cautious about what the second wave will do. We have learned a lot from the first one. So we have experience on how to manage our business and the supply chain. However, of course, we also need to look at demand on a global scale. So that's why our outlook has been somewhat cautious, but I think uh, it's better to underpromise and overdeliver. And time will tell, you know, what we can do. What are you seeing from from customers at this moment? I mean, your your biggest revenue base in the Americas is, of course, the United States. In in Asia, it's China. In Europe, it, it's Germany. Mm-hmm. What are you seeing from from customers? Anything that gives you real concern amid the rising COVID cases that we're seeing? Yeah, well, you know, Julia, on a general note, uh, we are in the capital, in the, in the capital uh, um, investment business. Mm. So we, we're making uh, um, products where people invest. So they put a lot of eggs into their basket when they choose to invest into new, pa- new power plants or into new um, automotive plants. So this needs confidence and reassurance. And you are, if you're just about to go into the second wave of COVID, you know, there is not that much confidence about making big decisions on capital goods. So that's the downside. The upside is that we see massive growth in China. Uh, in the fourth quarter alone, we had a 22% increase year over year on orders and a 12% increase year over year on revenues. And that seems to continue somewhat, maybe less dynamic as we have seen it in the last quarter, but October already looks like it's continuing. So that's a, a positive. Um, if you look at the United States, obviously, you know, with, um, with the pandemic and some uncertainty on, on the political matter when things, when the dust settles down, we must not underestimate the power of a stimulus package worth two trillion. And if I get that one somewhat right, I think the new administration looks into renewable energy, energy efficiency, infrastructure, 
public transportation. So those are big ticket items which could actually benefit the capital goods sector, the confidence, as well as of course Siemens because we are market leaders in those segments. So there is a lot of uh, bright spots, but you've got to be careful because the value chain, uh, the supply chain is so internationally uh, sophisticated that it doesn't do any good if Germany does well or other countries do well in the pandemic and, and, and you know, other ones don't do that well. So that's why I believe we are well advised to be cautious, look at the opportunities, be very alert, adaptive and quick in order to grab uh, the opportunities. And as I said, the U.S. offers a lot of potential. The weakest spot, unfortunately, is Europe, I have to say, with the automotive being uh, somewhat down in the middle of a transformation. Confidence is not that high because every country in Europe does its own thing rather than sticking together and get the power of Europe to work. So uh, I think the jury is really out on what, nine, what the 2021 will look like. But again, we finished very strong. We have a lot of confidence. We've got good people, good technology, and we are all over the place in the whole world. So I believe uh, it's, uh, it's uh, fair to say that um, we should actually outperform competition going forward. And that's at the end what really counts. Yeah, I was going to say, as far as Europe's concerned, we've uh, you and I long discussed the fact that, that Europe tends to go its own ways, and I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. Um, Joe, let's talk about what you said about the $2 trillion stimulus. You're talking about a new package in the United States. Are you anticipating, hopeful, that that perhaps can be agreed before the end of the year, or do you see that most likely coming in the first half of next year? Because clearly, I think if you look at the economy in the United States, more support is needed. Well, I mean, uh, again, there's a, you know, there's a quite a, a lot of uh, causes there. So we have a multi-causational environment, especially in the United States. I believe the, the political leadership needs to straighten out where we are going finally, eventually. That will certainly give some confidence on what the direction ought to be. Uh, secondly, then put the stimulus package to work will, will take time. On the other hand, you know, there is so much infrastructural demand mm. in the United States, be it public transport, be it uh, modern energy efficient um, power lines uh, and associated matters, so we can act rather quickly. And the other thing is that, you know, once we can book the order, you know, we can actually keep our people in the job because we know it's going to get better and we have a, a prospectus going forward. So I'm reasonably optimistic, I believe, on the United States has been the powerhouse of the world if it comes to getting themselves out of trouble all the time. And I bank on that also that it happens uh, next time. <laughs> he says with a hopeful smile. Um, Joe, talk to me about trade, because this is one of the other critical elements, not only when you're talking about infrastructure, but also global investment. And we have been through a period, particularly between the United States and China, but also the United States and Europe, let's be clear, of um, trade tensions. Do you hope and do you assume if we do see a, a president-elect Biden become a, a President Biden, that some of those tensions will calm? Well, uh, I mean, look, uh, we are now going into big politics, obviously, which is a bit out of uh, the space I actually am supposed to be covering. But I mean, let's face it, big companies, especially, you know, like, like us, uh, which are all over the place, we've got 50,000 people in the United States on 26 billion revenues. We are double digit billions in China. 
uh, and still are a European uh, company. Of course, we are watching, you know, what's going on uh, in that triad, so to speak. I mean, uh, from our point of view, if it comes to the Chinese United States uh, economic uh, debate, I'm not sure that there's going to be an underlying change uh, on that matter. The, the rhetoric may change, maybe even the predictability on what's going to happen. But the underlying thing is this is a fight and a struggle about who is going to be the number one economic powerhouse in the future. Mm. And so that's an understandable topic. Now the question is, where does that leave Europe? I mean, first of all, the question would be which Europe? Because currently we have 27 plus one countries which are all trying to do their own thing rather than getting together, come out with a meaningful foreign economic policy to have a seat on the table together with China and the United States. So that's the underlying topic. Now, what can be changed? What can be changed? We really do hope that uh, the President-elect Biden uh, reinforces uh, the ties between Europe and the United States on both uh, the understanding on national security, obviously, as well as um, the understanding on fair and multilateral trade. Should that happen, which I believe is a desirable thing, that Europe and the US get closer together again, also on trade and economic matters, I believe that China will also ease its uh, way of uh, debating the new world trade economic order. So I'm very hopeful that this will you know, move into the right direction, because that would help the whole world if we can foster multilateralism and, of course, free and fair trade going forward. It helps everybody, keeps the jobs, is good for society and eventually good for the people. Joe, I have to say, for someone who didn't want to talk about politics, you're uh, very good at navigating that. Perhaps we're looking at a future in politics for you at some point soon. Um, and I'm only half joking. Well, you've made um, it easier on me, so thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, you, uh, you've led Siemens for, for seven years. I, I mentioned at the beginning of the interview, this is your last earnings report. Um, the, sh the company's changed dramatically, I think, in the last seven years under your stewardship. Are you confident that not only you're leaving it in good hands, and I know you feel you are, but that you're in a strong position going forward? Yeah, we, we, we have been in a strong position. We have mm. been working really hard uh, the last uh, seven, eight years. And uh, when I started the, the job as CEO of the company, I said, I want to do two things among other things, but the two most, most relevant topics were first, you know, to hand over this company in a better shape as I have been getting it for my predecessor. And the other thing was that I do want to have a long-term meaningful transition to my successor. And I think mm -hmm. on both areas we're doing reasonably well. Could it have been more? Yeah, absolutely. Should it have been more? Probably. The point though is, you know, we always need to balance between the doable and the desirable. Uh, in, in many ways, I thought I'm way too slow, I'm not fast enough, I'm not good enough. But on the other hand, you know, if you don't have your team moving along, if you don't get your employees to, to get into the strategy, it doesn't do any good. So I think after all, we have prepared the company for the next uh, decade, for the biggest transformation of all time. We call it the fourth industrial revolution yes. or the Internet of Things. We have three strong, powerful companies, energy, healthcare, and the industrial Siemens. So I believe the stage is set for the next level of ultimate performance. And 
the that's, stage uh, is set. That's what I've been trying to achieve. And, and we'll see what comes. Joe, I have to cut you off there because I've spent too long talking to you and I'm going to um, crash into the end of a break. It was a pleasure to speak to you, sir. And we'll Absolutely. speak again, no doubt. Stay safe. Joe Kayser there, the CEO of Siemens. The market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move and U.S. stocks are up and running this Thursday. A mostly lower start as investors hit the pause on the value stock rally that was all the rage earlier this week. The U.S. reporting a record 144,000 new COVID cases yesterday. A fresh warning, I think, to investors that the health and economic crises could worsen dramatically before vaccines are ultimately distributed. All this comes amid news that an additional 709,000 Americans filed for jobless claims last week. A slower rise than expected, but we remain at historically high levels. And the International Energy Agency issued a fresh economic warning today, too, saying a significant bounce in oil demand won't come until, quote, well into next year, even, even with a vaccine. Hmm. Okay, let's get to some better news. Alibaba's record-breaking Singles Day event showing China's economic recovery in action with consumers willing to splash the cash even amid a pandemic. Just to recap some of those staggering numbers, a record-breaking sales of roughly $74 billion through the 11-day period. Spending is returning to pre-pandemic levels as consumers treat themselves and Chinese firms aren't the only ones to benefit. A growing number of Western brands are joining in, eyeing a massive opportunity for growth in tough times. Alibaba President Michael Evans explains these phenomenal numbers. If you step back and say what happened, I think it's several things. First of all, China is clearly in the post-pandemic environment and a post-pandemic economy. Uh, Consumers are back to pre-COVID levels of consumption, which is obviously a big part of what has driven this result. I also think that we had a very, very different approach this year to brands and also to consumers. So we moved from what I call a two-dimensional approach with brands, which is basically text and pictures, to a multi-dimensional approach, which means live streaming, short video content, gaming, things that are very engaging and interactive with the customer. And the consumer saw something very different this year as well, which is much more immersive, much more content driven, and much more of an interactive experience. And you know, this is what we think is the future of lifestyle, not shopping, but the lifestyle of the consumer in China and therefore the way that they wish to participate in our global shopping festival. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, 800 million consumers, let's be clear, 2 million new products, 250,000 new brands. I know one of the other big elements here, and you've alluded to it with the opportunities that are represented here in terms of foreign sellers, particularly sellers in the United States, but elsewhere, attaching and finding the Chinese consumer here. Talk to me about the effort that you've made to bring on new brands, to identify new products and enable some of those sellers from other countries to access a burgeoning Chinese consumer here that's clearly willing to spend. Well, it's very interesting. Of those 250,000 brands that participated, about 26,000 of them came from outside of China. And they come from 84 different countries. So the world is participating in this shopping festival. 
I think the second thing that's important is thousands of those are in the U.S. And that includes also hundreds and hundreds of small businesses that we've connected directly to the Chinese consumer as well. Now, the one thing that many of those 84 countries share is that COVID has caused real stress for retailers and small businesses in almost all of those countries. And so developing a digital strategy and finding a way to connect to the Chinese consumer through our platform has been in many cases a way to survive and in some cases a way to prosper in what continues to be a very difficult retail environment in most countries, including the United States. So one of the things that we're most proud of, because we do good work for the Apples and the Estee Lauders and the Nikes and the really big brands, but to be able to take small businesses like Uncle Bud or Allbirds or Bissell or Pippet or Fender, you know, or Seal Bigelow, the the oldest (laughs) pharmacy in the United States is on our platform in China, to be able to do good things for them is a huge part of our mission today and in the future. Yeah, and I have to say, I've spoken to some of them and they are hugely excited about the opportunity. I think if, and it's a bird's eye view, but if we look at the broader market here, 25% of of retail sales are online in China. If I look at the United States, it's what, 10 to to 15%. The Even just in terms of expanding your consumer base here by being online and using a platform like yours is a vital opportunity at this moment in time when, as you say, during a pandemic, it's it's a struggle anyway for many of these small businesses. You know, when I talk to CEOs of, of brands and small businesses, not just in the U.S., but around the world, they're all very conscious of two important things. The first is that if you don't have a China strategy, you're missing out on what might potentially be a very significant trade channel Uh, and connection to a brand new consumer base in the future. And the second thing is that they have to have a digital strategy in the post-pandemic environment, because otherwise their stores are closed and they cannot stay in business. So I think these two points have become very real for brands all over the world and certainly for brands and small businesses in the United States. More Michael Evans coming up after the break, where we'll be talking US and China politics and that delayed Ant IPO. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. From China's economic recovery to a shifting political landscape. Of course, I'm talking about China's relationship with a future potential President Biden and what it means for businesses bridging East and West. Here's the view of Alibaba's president, Michael Evans. Well, I think that our U.S. strategy has remained unchanged for the last five years and will remain unchanged going forward. So it's really independent of who the president of the United States is. And the reason is that the strategy is very simple. And this is where we spend 95% of our time, which is connect those small businesses, those brands, those retailers, the farmers connect them all to the Chinese consumer directly. It doesn't matter whether it's Alaskan king crab or the latest cleaning products from Bissell or a Fender guitar or Uncle Bud CBD products. All of these are in demand on the platform. And this is what we do. And this is what we will continue to do. And just in the last couple of months, we put an additional 200 brands on the platform as people start to realize that China 
is a very important sales channel for them. And it's a way to directly connect to the consumer. So the strategy is going to remain unchanged. With great success and great growth also comes great scrutiny. And I can't help but notice the share prices of some of the big tech giants, yours included over the past few days, with concerns perhaps about seeing the authorities move over dominance, antitrust issues. We've obviously seen it in the EU. We're talking about it here in the United States. How worried are you about potential regulatory increases, antitrust uh, issues in China for Alibaba? Look, I think from an antitrust uh, standpoint, these are new proposals, Hmm. not laws, but proposals that have been put in front of the public for comment. Uh, It's going to take some time, probably through the end of November, before we uh, finish the public comment process and probably more time after that to get clarity. And so it's very difficult and, and not particularly fruitful to sort of speculate on what the outcome will be. But we see this same issue in many countries, not just in China. So this is not this is not unique by any means to China. And I think on the and financial situation, I think there it's very interesting because innovation in any industry, in any country, needs to keep pace with what's happening in the regulatory environment. And the regulatory environment needs to continue to evolve and adapt as well. So again, not unique to China by any means. We see it everywhere in the world. But the key, I think, is two things. The first is we must have close collaboration and work closely with the regulators to make sure that the framework for the regulatory environment is done properly. And we need transparency of the regulatory environment to ensure that everybody understands the rules and can work within them. I couldn't agree more on those points. You mentioned Ant there. And I just want to ask you again, because clearly there was great uh, expectation and speculation and it remains so. Any sense of timing? Can you give us any sense of timing about when we may see that IPO in the near future? No, we don't have a we don't have a view on that today. I think first things first, which is clarity on the regulatory environment. Right. Um, and timing will be driven after that. Makes sense to me. Final question, because I have to let you go. What was the best selling product in uh, the singles 11 days? Because, I mean, I was looking down the list and you can get anything from a house to a car, whatever product you want, you can find. What was the best selling product? Well, I'm not going to tell you what the best selling product (laughs) was because we have 250,000 brands on the platform, 249,999 who would be very upset if we gave that (laughs) brand the benefit of the marketing. But I will tell you that the big selling categories, to give you the, the sort of top two or three, are clearly fashion and apparel, beauty, mother and baby, the products which have always been the best selling and the biggest selling products on the platform. Um, and those brands are out in force, uh, making sure that they sell not only the things that they're used to selling, but also innovating and um, focusing and showing, displaying their new products that they're that are bespoke to the Chinese consumer. So it is a great period to innovate and learn, do a lot of R&D at scale as part of our global shopping festival. Yes, I thought you were going to say come to the platform and uh, see for yourself, Julia. You could have said that too. <laughs> Please come to the platform. <laughs> All right, coming up on First Move, vaccine science is one challenge, storage and distribution is quite another. How companies are tackling it, next. 
Welcome back to First Move. If you joined us on the show yesterday, you might remember the conversation with the CEO of Train Technologies, the firm with cold storage expertise, who described the challenges of keeping the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine at a temperature lower than found on Mars. Well, Anna Stewart has been looking at how firms in the supply chain are responding. We are in a very, very good situation to have 1.3 billion doses globally again next year. Millions of doses have already been made, ready to go, should the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine candidate get regulatory approval. This one uses messenger RNA, a new technology which poses a major challenge for storage and transportation of the vaccine. We have to keep the product very cold and shipped uh, in very much sub-freezing temperatures. Then there will be a short term of stability, perhaps at refrigerated temperatures, and that's going to be a logistical uh, challenge. Logistics firms like UPS, FedEx and Deutsche Post DHL started planning for this months ago. We have about 9,000 healthcare um, specialists around the globe, about 140 certified uh, warehouses around the globe, about another 100 uh, terminals that are uh, certified for, uh, for healthcare. Um, we also had to make some specific investments in minus 80 degrees uh, storage points and containers to be able to distribute. So those are all things that we, that we had to do. These firms are a critical link between the pharmaceutical firms and governments. What we have to focus on is uh, our interaction with our customers when they say that we need to be ready. Um, uh, we working and we're planning accordingly to that uh, uh, and we will be ready. Logistics firms may be ready to transport a COVID-19 vaccine. Some countries may not be ready to receive it. This challenge is probably the biggest logistical challenge we've ever faced, regardless of the temperature. Minus 80 adds another dynamic and another problem. Um, you know, I'm being told that this vaccine isn't really designed and being expected to be used in low and middle income countries. That personally concerns me because we should be making sure that we deliver the uh, vaccine equitably. Other promising COVID-19 vaccine candidates are nearing the end of phase three trials and they won't all need sub-zero storage. They will, however, all need huge logistical support to make it to all the corners of the world. And Anna Stewart joins us now from London and a great job looking at this. You know, it was funny when I was having the conversation with Trend Technology yesterday, I was thinking the ones that need cold storage, that, super cold storage, that's fine for developed nations, for poorer nations. We're going to have to use different vaccines. This is the thing. And we've heard right from the beginning of the pandemic that no one is safe until everyone is safe. You don't just need a vaccine for those mature markets that have ultra cold uh, supply chains in place. You also need them for the rest of the world. We've been speaking so much, Julia, this week about vaccine efficacy with the good news from Pfizer-BioNTech. But we need to also keep in mind um, vaccine equity. How can we ensure that there are vaccines right across the world. And this is something that there are global organizations like CEPI, Gavi, the WHO, the Gates Foundation have all been working on uh, and are hoping to secure plenty of supplies. But it really depends on which vaccines will work where. Clearly from the reporting on Pfizer, you can see that different types of vaccine will work better for different 
markets. Now, fortunately, there are currently 10 vaccine candidates that are in phase three trials, most of them actually nearing the end of those trials. Uh, if they are successful, this could be really good news in terms of having different types of vaccines for different sorts of areas. The big question, will some be more effective than others? And that's if, and it's a huge if, of course, more than one actually makes it through all of the hurdles and gets regulatory approval. We're still not there yet. We're still weeks away. Julia? Yeah, science, number of doses, the conditions that they have to exist in, and cost is the other angle here, Anna, as well. Lots of important questions. Thank you so much for your work on that. Anna Stewart. All right, that's it for the show. You've been watching First Move. I'm Julia Chasley. Stay safe and we'll see you very soon. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.